0: Well, it's great to see you today. Thanks so much for joining us in worship. I'm really excited to be talking with you today as we continue a series we began last week on what it is that we can do to make the experience of worship become all that it's meant to be. And I suggested in our conversation last time that many of us have lost, or maybe never even actually developed in the first place, an accurate picture of what worship really is. Uh, For example, some of us have this tendency, I suggested, to uh, think of worship in terms of what I got from the service. Now, I always hope that that every time you come into this circle, you do feel that it's valuable to you and you're walking away with something that works in your daily life. But, but worship at its core is, is really not so much about the act of being pleased ourselves by the experience as it is the act of whether it pleases God. Now, the word worship literally means worth-ship. It's the contraction of those two words, worth-ship. Worship is, in a sense, the act of expressing to God what we think he's worth. Now, the question that we could probably ask each time more properly when we come into an environment like this is, by the time we finish up today, will we have sung with such devotion or prayed with such humility or or retuned our giving and our, our thinking and our way of being in life with such faithfulness that God will be pleased by the knowledge that we have at least some clue about what he is worth. And that's what I meant when I said last week that the very first thing that we are called to bring with us to worship is a passion for the applause of heaven, to see God really pleased by our devotion to him, our sense of of his real worth. I want to go on to say that I think it is hard to do that unless we actually know who we are truly playing to when we attempt this uh, symphony that we call worship. And that brings us to a second attitude that we need to bring with us each time we come to a place like this. And so as we prepare to explore that one today, uh, let me invite you to bow your head with me as we come before God in prayer. And now Lord God, come in power we ask, uh, not in the power of human words, but of your Holy Spirit. And in encountering us in this place with the wonder of who you are, uh, remind us, Lord God, whose we are and what it means to glorify you with all of our lives. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I read uh, recently of a newsstand vendor in New York City that was approached by a, uh, a tourist passerby who came up to him and said, Sir, could you, could you please tell me which way is north? And the vendor looked at this out-of-towner as if he was an alien from another planet, and he responded and he said, Look, buddy, we got uptown, we got downtown, we got crosstown, we ain't got no north. (laughs) I love that story because I think it suggests something of a reality about the frame of our lives, too while I know we've got a better understanding of our own city than perhaps that visitor to New York does, I I wanna suggest to you that it is easy to develop an extremely parochial or limited understanding of the landscape, uh, the the environment that belongs to God. Um, That particular concern is one that gets voiced in a best-selling book by a gentleman named Don McCullough Uh, a book entitled The Trivialization of God, and I love the subtitle of it. it. The subtitle is The Dangerous Illusion of a Manageable Deity. And McCullough observes in this book that many Christians today seem to boldly claim to know God and his worth, and yet a close study of their actual attitudes and behaviors suggests that maybe they are truly more devoted to some pseudo-god, or what McCullough calls godlets, than they are to the grand, glorious, wondrous god that we meet in the scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments. And McCullough goes on in the book to describe several of the more popular, trivialized gods of our time. And I want to invite you today to think about a few of those with me and to see if you recognize any of these beings in the catalog of descriptions I'll provide. Is it possible, for example, that you are worshipping the God of my cause? That is a popular God in our day, I think, uh, in part because there are just simply so many important causes that need divine help, that need God's backing or engagement in some uh, obvious way. Uh, Many of us look around us today and we see technology eroding the quality of our relationships, our ability to truly be present with one another. Uh, We see our hurried kids becoming more and more anxious or or depressed or without a central sense of identity. Uh, We face, I know, a a crisis of opioid abuse and of climate change that has cataclysmic consequences. We watch as millions of babies are thrown away and millions of children are thrown into refugee camps across the world. We know of the violence that reigns in our own city here, and we constantly are reminded of the tremendous conflicts and disagreements and divisions that govern religious and ethnic and racial and political life. Uh, in our time. It just seems clear from our reading of the scriptures that God cares about these things. And because of that, it becomes only a short hop to thinking that God cares primarily about these things, that he is as impassioned as we are about a particular cause. And and so we come to to believe that, that, that God is all about that. And and our conception of God uh, increasingly is bound to having this God fit our particular cause. So the eternal God himself becomes, in a sense, reduced in our minds to to the God of the right to life, or the God of the right to die, or the God of uh, progressivism, or the God of conservatism. And like the religious leaders who encounter Jesus in his day, we often become very certain that he is the God of our cause. Can you see anything of yourself in that description? In Civil War times, Abraham Lincoln was once asked, don't you feel, Mr. President, that God is on the side of the north? And Lincoln responded, The real question is not whether God is on our side, but whether we are on God's side. And that question, I think, ought to haunt us a lot more than it does uh, in our time today. It seems to me that we perhaps need to spend more time in prayer and and self-searching before we so blithely assert that God plays exclusively for our team or our faction or our party or our nation, remember how absolutely certain the Pharisees were that God was on their side as they were actually crucifying that God. Maybe, however, it's not the God of my cause that you personally worship the most. Maybe it's rather the God of my understanding. Uh, over the years, of course, many great minds, scholars, have sought to systematize an understanding of, of God. And we see so many descriptions of this uh, glorious uh, deity in the scriptures. Uh, The work of these great scholars and theologians has yielded, of course, wonderful creeds and doctrines and confessions of faith and treatises that have provided a marvelous common language for uh, talking about God, his character, his work in the world. But the, the very wisest of the theologians across history, people like Thomas Aquinas and Karl Barth and many others, have always recognized that the formulations that theologians and others provide are simply designed to give us some handles, to give us some possible frames. They've always recognized that whatever uh, creedal formula they were using, they they were struggling to to really describe a God who was far more transcendent than any particular way of describing him uh, 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 was sufficient for. And many voices within Christian publishing now and uh, broadcasting out there uh, in the world today seem to have lost that original sense of humility. Uh, They speak so often with great certainty, absolute clarity about who God is and what God wants. Uh, They connect the dots of scripture in a way that defines theologies and denominational orthodoxies as if their take on these things is the necessary and the exclusive home of God. And God helps somebody, they often feel, who, who doesn't worship the God of my understanding of creation or the God of my understanding of men and women or the God of my understanding of scripture. Yet, if you think about it, how often in Scripture do we see pictures of God having to send prophets to talk to his people in order to expand their understanding of who he is? My ways are not your ways, he says. Uh, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher are my ways than your ways. Other people often slip into worshiping what Don McCullough calls the God of my experience, too. Uh, His followers are the ones that believe that if you haven't experienced conversion like I do, if you haven't uh, had an experience of the Holy Spirit like I have, if you don't experience God's presence through this particular style of worship the way I experience him, then, then maybe you really haven't experienced God. Maybe you don't really know the true God. What do believers like that say then with the God we meet in the scriptures so often, whom Jesus speaks of as the one who, whose spirit moves like the wind? You don't know where it's going to come from. You don't know where it's going to go next. What do we do with the images we get in scriptures of a God who often shows up in very unexpected ways and places who seems to delight actually in manifesting himself, his grace, his truth in a a remarkable variety, a diversity of ways. Speaking of God's grace, the God of my comfort is also uh, popular in many places today. Uh, We can come to see God as someone who would actually never want one of his beloved creatures to experience a whole lot of pain. Uh, A God who would not allow uh, one of his loved ones to experience loss. A God whose greatest aim is to make us happy, to make us uh, peaceful and content. Maybe you've uh, worshipped that God, or perhaps you've followed after the God of my success, uh, the God who wants to see me uh, healthy and prosperi- pro- full of prosperity. And, and we're told so often these days by uh, preachers of various kinds that if you just follow this plan, then God is going to give you this prosperous, stress-free life. There are dozens of evangelists of this particular gospel who cite scripture passages out of context and win millions of followers and dollars also with this so-called good news. But what about all of the other scripture that suggests that we have a God who will refine and redeem his children sometimes through experiences of suffering and failure? Uh, How do we reconcile the God of my success or the God of my comfort with a God who allows his own son to go to the cross. By now, some of you have to be wondering, what in the world are you trying to get at? <laughs> what's, the, what's the big idea here, Dan? What are you trying to say? Well, what I'm trying to communicate today is, is the somewhat countercultural idea that, that alongside of this passion to, to gain the applause of heaven, that one of the most important things we need to bring to worship is an attitude of reverent agnosticism, of reverent agnosticism. Uh, my friend Don McCullough points out that we have lots of negative associations with that word agnosticism. Agnosticism has come to suggest, often a lifestyle of spiritual shrugging, an attitude that essentially says, listen, since I can't really be entirely sure uh, what God is like, I don't really need to trouble myself to know him, much less acting on whatever it is I do know of him. But agnosticism, properly understood, doesn't necessarily mean a lack of belief in God, so much as a wariness about allowing our conception of God to be stuffed into locked into a box of some kind, reverent agnosticism, the attitude that I am actually commending for us to consider today is the attitude of a Christian who knows that there is a God and that this God has revealed himself uh, in the person of Jesus Christ, met us with supreme power and and with saving goodness in the person of Jesus. But the reverent agnostic is one who is very realistic about his or her own tendencies when it comes to perceiving all of this God. Reverend agnosticism is the attitude of a Christian who knows that if if left utterly to his own devices, he would likely reduce God into a trivial idol, someone who is small enough to be manipulated and managed to suit uh, my own interests and my own tastes, Uh, a God that is uh, comfortably able to fit in my pocket, but who is far too small to actually redeem me or transform me. This is why the trivialization of God is a dangerous illusion. It separates us from the transforming power of the real God. As McCullough points out, it's worth noting that God gave the commandment against worshiping other gods, not to pagans, but to Israel, the very people of God. And then he adds this very chilling reminder, He says, being saved never guarantees continued worship of the true God. Now, here is what I want to know, and maybe you might get curious about knowing too. Perhaps there's no way to guarantee that when you come to worship, you're going to be encountering and growing in relationship with the true God but is there a way to increase dramatically that possibility or even that likelihood that when I enter into an experience or a service of worship that I am entering into, an, into a portal that could lead me to a greater understanding of who God really is? Well, I think there is a way. I think that the recipe to growing in that kind of understanding is found in the words of the Apostle Paul in the 11th and the 12th chapter of his great letter to the Christians in Rome long ago. And I want to encourage you to put Paul's prescription to work in your own life, as I will seek to do this in my life, in the form of three simple prayers that you and I might offer up before our worship each week and throughout our practice of it, each time we come together like this. And here's the first prayer. God, awaken me to your mystery today. Use this time that we're together to awaken me to your mystery. There are a lot of mysteries in life for all the things we do know. There are so many other things that we don't know. Do you know that we cannot even explain the mystery of a watermelon seed? A botanist cannot figure out how a watermelon seed can manage to draw from the ground and through itself more than 200 thousand times its weight in nutrients They can't unravel how the watermelon seed takes this material and uses it to color an outside surface that's beyond the imagination of art, and then forms inside of that a skin uh, and a white rind, and within that, a sweet, rich, red heart thickly inlaid with black seed, each one of those seeds of which is capable of drawing 200,000 times its weight, again, to produce the miracle once more. We cannot encompass the mystery of a single watermelon seed. So what's going to give us the audacity to think that we can circumscribe the mystery of God himself? The Apostle Paul puts this idea like this. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond searching out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Paul is saying here that we can make all of the idols that we want in our lives, but we will never be able to really reduce the actual mystery of who God really is. We cannot know God on our own. We cannot tell God what to do. We cannot manipulate, manage, or buy him off with our gifts, Paul is saying. We can only pray that God will for his reasons graciously deign to awaken us to his presence and reveal to us something more about himself than we knew before we came. So make that your prayer throughout this service today and the week to come. God, awaken me to the greater mystery of who you are. Then add this second prayer to your list if you would. Lord, Give me the humility that I need in the presence of other believers. A newly commissioned ensign was out at sea for the very first time, and he bumped into a lowly seaman, a sailor, as he entered the wardroom. And the ensign barked out, And where do you think you're going in such a hurry, sailor? And the flustered sailor responded, Well, I, 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 I'm just going downstairs to mop the floor, sir and the ensign ensign snorted out. You'd better learn naval terminology, sailor. Why, when you speak to me again, don't talk about going downstairs. Uh, You talk about going below decks to swab the deck, and if you say downstairs again, I'll throw you out of that little round window over there. (laughs) How like that guy we can come to be sometimes, how often we get so concerned about pointing out the failure of other people's concepts, other people's terminology about God, how busy we are doing these things and somehow failing to consider how far off the mark we might actually be ourselves. This is, I think, why Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. As you and I worship here, I, I, I hope we are regularly praying for humility. I hope that we're asking for the sober judgment that is necessary to recognize the limitations of our perspective. I hope we're asking for, for fresh capacity to, be, to, to see something about God's person or come to understand something more about his will and way. And I hope that we're looking around us and engaging in conversations uh, before and after our times of worship with other people here, Uh, because it just may be that they see something more or they have a window into something about God that is, is something that he wants us to receive. Maybe this person has been given a measure of faith, as Paul says, that's greater than ours and that can be a gift to us. Who knows, it might be your spouse, it might be your child, it could be a friend or that stranger down the road that knows something about God that you need to know, and every now and then it will even be the preacher, but only now and then. If the people around you and around me are doing their job, then we will be Inspired, I think, also to a third and final prayer. And the prayer is simply this. Spirit, ignite my desire to explore the vast expanse of your word. When I invite you to approach worship with a reverent agnosticism, I am not saying that we cannot or do not know God at all. On the contrary, as Christians, I think we know a great deal about God, not because we're geniuses, but because God, in his infinite kindness, has chosen to reveal himself to us. He gives us this revelation in the creation all around us. He provides it through the voice and the prompting of his Holy Spirit. But he offers us a window and understanding of himself most significantly in the pages of the Bible. Some of you I know are are students of that Bible. You know that scripture very, very well. But do you know truly the vast expanse of it all? The point is, don't let uh, what you already know about God keep you from continually seeking to grow in a greater knowledge of the fullness of all that God wants to tell you about himself. Let an attitude of of reverent agnosticism fill you with a zeal to know more of this God than than you had knowledge of last week, more than the world tells you about, more than, 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 than you could find in any other way than plugging deeply, searching extensively the Word of God in Scripture. As the Apostle Paul says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and to approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Please pray with me. Thus may you, God, bless to us this reading and this reflection upon your holy word. And by its light, Lord, lead us into an even greater knowledge of who you are, who we are, and that more abundant and eternal life which we may yet discover and live. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.